Welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast, sponsored by Movement is Life. My name is Dr. Mary O'Connor, Chair of Movement is Life. Today, we have a special guest on our podcast, Max Jordan Gumani Tiako. Max is currently a fourth-year medical student at the Yale School of Medicine. He was born in Cameroon and came to the United States when he was 16. As an undergraduate, he studied civil and environmental engineering at Howard University and then went on for a master's in biomedical engineering from Georgia Institute of Technology. Currently a Yale medical student, he is spending a research year at the Center for Emergency Care and Policy Research at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And Max was recently named in the Forbes 30 Under 30 in Healthcare group. So welcome and congratulations, Max. And I just want to add that, of course, all views and opinions expressed are the participants' own. So Max, delighted to have you with us. Thank you, Dr. O'Connor. It's a delight to be here with you. Thrilled to have this conversation. Let's start with you sharing with our audience how you became so focused on health equity. I was raised with a sense of awareness that just life wasn't fair, basically, that we, you know, we live in a society where goods aren't uh, distributed equally. Like, you know, in Cameroon, I studied, you know, I studied history and I knew like, you know, our countries that were colonized, we're not, you know, we're like sort of like not doing as well economically, which has huge like health implications. When I was at Howard for undergrad, you can't graduate from Howard without taking a course in like African-American studies. And the one I chose was like education and policy in black America. So much of what we discussed, uh, you know, covered housing and education segregation and like the history of how much seeking an education for black people in the U S was sort of an act of resistance, right? Like people were, uh, punished for wanting to read, for learning how to read, for wanting to learn. All of that has just generally made me aware of inequality broadly. And so I went to graduate school wanting to sort of reconnect with my prior interest in biological sciences or, you know, biomedicine. I thought, okay, what's, what's the best way to do that with a degree in civil and environmental engineering? And it bioengineering was what made most sense. Like I had the same sort of fundamental understanding of like fluid mechanics, mechanics of materials, those kinds of things. And I wanted to apply them to biomedicine writ large. And in grad school, you know, working on innovation was cool, but I, I had sort of a moment where one, I wasn't too thrilled about, you know, working a lab to be honest. And also the realization in one of my um, pathophysiology classes where we discussed you know, like the epidemiology, like, you know, in every pathophys class, even in med school, typically you discuss some kind of disorder. You talk a little bit about the epidemiology, how the disease is distributed and whatnot. And, you know, something clicked, for instance, like the lecture on diabetes, right? Like we've made so many um, strides um, across the board in, in a lot of chronic diseases, but what hasn't changed much is like the gap in life expectancy between black people and white people in this country. Or, you know, certain gaps when you look at like Sub-Saharan Africa and say Western Europe. And I thought, man, all this like innovation stuff that I'm working on, what's it any good if it doesn't help close that gap? 
that's part of what kind of launched right. me on this path to medical school. Honestly, like, you know, the combination of like not being thrilled about lab research, the fact that it takes a long time, also knowing that like not, you know, not all innovation leads to a more equal union, I guess. Uh, and then in medical school, you know, my awareness continued to grow by virtue of like being in class and, it, you know, feeling sort of deeply connected to some of these inequities and feeling like there was sort of a gap in our medical education. We're very happy that uh, that you're so engaged in the space because obviously the more people that we have in the space, uh, my opinion, the, the faster we can a- address the challenges that we're facing. And you've been so active in raising the level of awareness related to health equity. You write a column in a medical student magazine in training, and the name of your column is White Coat and a Hoodie. And you also have your own podcast focusing on health equity called Flip the Script. What have you found most rewarding about these activities? Some of it is basically being able to connect with people that I never thought I would be able to reach. Um, And it really came to light during this pandemic, right, where, like, I had the opportunity to, you know, like, talk to students who are um, at uh, Indiana University in a sociology class, right? Like, that isn't something that I never thought would be the, you know, like, in the realm of possibilities for me. Being able to have a platform that amplifies the work of a lot of people who are focused on health equity from different walks of life um, and, and, and just sharing that. And then also learning, right? Like I learn a lot with every interview. I feel like I walk away having learned something new. Like, of course, when I invite a guest, I like read up on them and their work, but in the way I, I you know, I don't know, craft the questions, have the conversation. Um, I am left with like a new sort of like imprint from, uh, from the guest. So it's a combination of learning, just learning a lot from these casual-ish conversations, but also having like people who teach undergrads tell me, oh, I really like that one episode you did with Dorothy Roberts. I'm gonna add that to my syllabus because it's a different form of media um, that my students may be interested in. Or even some, I've had black medical students at other schools who have read something that I, that I wrote about experiencing racism, like email me out of the blue and said, oh my God, like, you know, that meant so much to just read that, right? That you were able to put that thing that I'm feeling into words. Um, And yeah, it's just incredibly meaningful. Tell us about um, how you use digital channels like Twitter, um, because I know you're very active on Twitter, uh, to to really help get the word out. And, And do you think that's really where the action is for health equity in terms of us educating people, kind of elevating the message and engaging a broader audience? I mean, I use Twitter. Uh, it's useful in the sense that, um, you know, people engage with content, people engage in discussions. Sometimes it can be really consuming. Um, I, you know, I always wonder how effective it is, honestly, because, you know, sometimes I'll share something and I look, I come back later and look at like the number of people who liked it versus the number of people who like clicked on the link. And there's such a discrepancy. And I'm like, y'all just liking this, but there is a subset of people who do, you know, like click on what you post, whether or not they read it all the way, whether or not they listen all the way. Um, I can't verify that, but but it definitely, there is some amount of engagement that comes from that. Um, 
I don't think it's the end all be all, right? Like it's it's not very personal. You don't get to, I guess, like build like relationship the same way you would like if you were in a classroom with people and were colleagues. Uh, I do think that that there are opportunities to further engage people that you might not have been able to. Uh, like for instance, the 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 lecture I gave to undergrads at University of Indiana or Indiana University uh, was from connecting with the professor via Twitter. So um, Twitter really does serve also a, that a sort of you know the kind of switchboard um, or node that keeps up, you know a bunch of people connected um, in different kinds of ways. You're so engaged in this space, and. One of the questions that I have is, how do you avoid burnout with your activism? Because the stressors of activism can be overwhelming to anybody, anybody who's in this space. And causes of burnout may be different for me as a white woman compared to you as a black man. And so I'm really interested in how you see the issue of burnout for those of us that are so passionate about you know, advancing health equity? I think I had to learn how to do this. So my, my academic advisor is a, um, you know, health equity, health services researcher. And one of the pieces of advice she gave me early on when I was like a first year med student was like, if you're going to do any activism, you're going to engage with your classmates, you know, try to educate, try to change things, make it scholarship. So one, right. So it's like doubly productive, right like it it counts towards something right. else too uh, and then I'm also I've also just gotten to become very protective of my time uh, and and how I engage with people so Twitter is a good example right people love like just bad faith arguments sometimes uh, on social media and so just knowing like when to engage when to retract uh, it's just so important I'm not saying like I'm perfect at it. I will get sucked into arguments every once in a while, but I try really hard not to as much. You know, making sure I stay connected with the people that I love and make sure I do the things that I love. I work out, I play tennis, um, you know, occasionally like watch good stand-up comedy. The, those are the, those are kind of my, my ways. I think that's great because, um, you know, we all need to keep ourselves healthy and centered in order to continue uh, to engage and and advance the agenda, which is you know health equity. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to get your perspective as a young professional in medicine on what you see as the primary drivers of health inequity. And I know that's a difficult question because health disparities are complex and multifactorial. Mm-hmm. But what would you say are the top issues that if we could address or solve tomorrow would really improve the, you know, health in our communities, particularly our communities uh, of color? It's a massive, massive issue. Um, It's massive, yes. You know, there's certain things that have just been the same basically forever, right? So, uh, you know, as far back as when like W.E.B. Du Bois wrote like the Philadelphia Negro, um, you know, and like discussing basically, you know, the the, the consequences of slavery uh, on on black folks and what it meant for like social life and health. The the same things um, are, you know, that like 
and people consider Du Bois to be sort of like one of the fathers of social epidemiology. And a lot hasn't changed. A lot has changed and a lot hasn't changed. And so like today, poverty, right, writ large, just like the degree to which this country has allowed poverty um, to, you know, to continue to grow and or without enough anti-poverty efforts, right? And, and, and you can break that down into different like buckets, like homelessness, right? Like the, the majority of homeless people in this country are black and black people are only 13% of the population. Uh, right. So homelessness is a huge, huge issue, which then in itself like contributes to um, like, you know, chronic chronic disease, uh, like worse chronic disease outcomes like substance use disorder, psychiatric disease outcomes, like, uh, you know, a host of issues that that really impact um, the health of our like homeless adults. But also, of course, impacts the health of children who are like going to school um, homeless. I mean, and right now we're literally in the middle of an eviction crisis that is disproportionately affecting black and brown people. Uh, So that's one thing. And then, you know, like under that sort of like poverty um, umbrella, right? And then, um, you know, like the just like unequal distribution of resources, uh, you know, from food to, uh, to the sort of like quality of infrastructure that allow people to access all kinds of services, you know, uh, transportation and like uh, urban greening spaces, like just the, the built environment, right? The nature of, of, of the built environment as we navigate society um, and how it shapes even the, say the distribution of grocery stores, which then also contributes to issues related to food insecurity. I mean, it's all intertwined. The black unemployment rate it's like twice as high as the white unemployment rate all the time. Like even when when even when the president is very proud of like low quote unquote unemployment, like at, at a steady state, black unemployment is around ten percent, uh, and that's not even right. That's not even counting people who are incarcerated. Right, mass incarceration is like a huge, huge, huge driver of uh, of inequities, both directly and indirectly. In that. Uh, right, like the people who are sequestered in prisons, like they, their health takes a major toll, but also their loved ones, their children, their partners, their cousins. Um, you know, it's good evidence that people who have a like even you know teenagers and young black adults who have a sibling um, that is incarcerated have like you know worse mental health outcomes. Like, just there's just so much. But I would say that fundamentally, poverty. I, I feel like the way we discuss inequity, we don't often enmesh it with class as much as we should. We don't make it clear, right? Like the police brutality is also a class issue, right? It isn't necessarily like wealthy or wealthier black people who are getting gunned down by the police all the time. It is primarily like lower income black people who live in communities that are hyper surveilled and thus are over uh, how am I going to say this? And thus are in like significantly increased contact with police. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, there are instances where middle and upper middle class black people face police brutality. So I'm not saying that those instances don't exist, but it's it's heavily also, uh, it's like a race and class issue. Uh, and so we really, you know, uh, even within healthcare, have our own role to play in addressing poverty. So healthcare providers helping to address poverty. Mm-hmm. 
what do you see as the uh, as the action steps that we could take as healthcare providers to impact positively impact the lives of people in poverty? Yeah, I think there, it's multi level, right? So there are things that healthcare providers can do, like at the in, like at the individual level, and then there are things that healthcare providers can do, like sort of system level, right? So. Uh, and by provider, I include health systems, hospitals, clinics, and and individual providers like you, um, mm-hmm. you know, yep. surgeons, physicians, uh, clinicians, nurses, whoever provides some kind of services. And so I want to start with the system level changes. So we know, for instance, right, that hospitals hire the majority of low wage um, healthcare workers, and healthcare is like the largest industry and the fastest growing industry in this country. It's something that, uh, but a lot of the jobs in healthcare is what people call pink collar, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I work around the, walk around the hospital here. The majority of like the people who are um, uh, uh, PCA, like patient care associate or CNAs, right? Like sort of um, the lower, coming in. The lower income, the lower, lower compensated in- jobs. Right. They are disproportionately Black and Hispanic women, and primarily Black women at, at, at our hospital here, Yelvin Hospital. But that is the case in a lot of hospitals, right? Uh, and not every hospital has, like, a decent, like, floor in terms of what is the wage of these employees, right? Uh, so I know here, I think it's around, it's, some, it's $15 to $17, I can't remember. But we know that, for instance, uh, I think a quarter... Um, of a black and Hispanic women who are low wage uh, healthcare workers, like live in poverty, um, and especially so if they um, if they had children. So really, you know, hospitals have to raise wages. That like that's such a like common sense thing, right? Just pay people better. You know, some people might might argue that if C suite employees took like you know, a tiny fraction worth of a pay cut, that would improve the lives of like dozens. If you think about it, right? Like the, let's say theoretically that say a hospital CEO makes a million dollars. And I know there, there are hospital CEOs that make way more than that. So if, if you know, if you as a hospital CEO decide to lose $200,000 out of your million dollar salary uh, and want, and, like that is four that is four people who can earn fifty thousand dollars, right? So if the argument is that money is limited and so that we you know, but 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 then one could argue, well cut cut up cut it from the top, uh from the from the administrator, just as an example. Uh and then there are other policies like for instance, like there's some health systems that for instance uh use contractors. Uh, instead of like necessarily like employing all their like all of their low wage workers and and may not necessarily like provide the same health insurance to their employees um, at you know at all levels. So like for there is no reason for for a for a health system to rely on Medicaid to insure any of its employees, right? Like hospitals are fairly profitable for the most part, uh, especially the you know the like the non county hospitals. So really providing adequate um, wages and, and health insurance to, to especially low-wage employees. And then there being opportunities for upward mobility, uh, both for the, pay, uh, for the employees themselves, but also the 
their children, right? So for instance, hospitals that are affiliated, I mean, this is this one is it's just off the cuff. I don't know if it's been tested, but say hospitals that are affiliated with a university could provide some amount of like, say, tuition remission for um, children of employees to go, like when they want to go to college, um, right? So like that's in itself. I and mean, we're in the middle of a discussion around um, uh, college debt, right? Black, uh, black students uh, and then adults later on in life are like far more likely to have um, any debt and more likely to take on more debt. And so there are so many different ways through um, like employment practices um, that healthcare could address um, uh, 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 poverty in this country as the big industry that it is. And then, you know, at an individual level, one, how we treat patients. So I want to think about, for instance, like people who come to the ED or come to primary care with low back pain, um, if they're not well treated, you know, if they're discriminated against not getting the medications that they're supposed to get, which we know there's evidence around, you know, black people receiving uh, lower amounts or no opioids when they show up with the same amount of pain compared to their white counterparts. We often talk about days of productivity loss, right? A lot of people aren't able to work when, uh, you know, when their back is hurting terribly. And if they're hourly employees and they're getting their money cut. So uh, we often only, like when we discuss the, uh, you know, like healthcare discrimination, like I rarely ever hear anyone think about it. What does this mean in terms of this person being able to go back to work and like earn, especially if they're blue collar employees where their job requires them to like use their body to work. So just treating right. people right <laughs> clinically is already huge in uh, preventing people f- from falling into poverty. Yeah, I want to follow that theme a little bit, but I want to go back to a second about hospitals. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not justifying any CEO uh, compensation. And of course, you know, there was just a, a little article on the web today I saw about some of these uh, astronomical levels of compensation for some very large um, healthcare companies, not necessarily healthcare systems, uh, mm-hmm. but others for, the, for their, their compensation. But most hospitals, I believe, mm-hmm. and from my experience, do not operate with a very significant margin. So, you know, their profit margin w- could be 2% to 5%. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not a lot of wiggle room. And for example, then when something happens, it happens like a pandemic, you know, they can be financially really hit hard as everybody in the country mm-hmm. has been impacted by the pandemic. And we see rural hospitals closing at record rates mm-hmm. because they can't, they can't make it. Um, today I was reading an article about mission health mm-hmm. and it's, a, a large number of physicians leading, leaving Mission Health that was purchased uh, maybe, I don't know, a year or so ago by the for-profit HCA. Yep. And when that deal went through, there was a trust set up in North Carolina. There were policies put in place to try and ensure uh, that care for the community and charity care in the community would continue because Mission Health had been a nonprofit and uh-huh. HCA is a for-profit. But Mission Health was my recollection, you know, they were struggling. They couldn't, they they felt that they had that it was the best option to be purchased by HCA. 
And so I think that the finances around healthcare systems and costs are really complicated. Be great to give everybody, you know, to raise uh, the income, particularly of those people that are so critical to the system, right? Uh, like environmental services and dietary services uh, for them to get higher levels of compensation. It's just a challenging problem. That's, I'm just pointing out that we have lots of hospitals struggling, hospitals closing, and when hospitals close, that can devastate a community. Yeah, I, I mean, and I, and I am in no way going to claim expertise in like the sort of like health, the economics behind, uh, you know, the decisions that hospitals make. I do know that every year hospitals like balloon in administrative costs, like, like admin costs is one of the big, it's like, if not the biggest chunk yes. of healthcare spending, right? And so I think they can be leaner, right? Like yeah. if, if like every year there. the stuff You're goes correct. up, right? Every year they hire more admin, right? Like, and, and there's more, they make more money than like primary care providers, right? Like the, the higher level admin folks in the hospital. Uh, and so um, I, I, I find it hard to sympathize with hospitals writ large, right? When they are going at the top, right? That's way more costly than like providing living wages uh, <laughs> at the bottom of, of their hierarchy. Um, and which is why earlier, one of my points was, well, cut the salary at the top. Like if, you know, if, if it's a matter of limited resources or limited uh, or, or limits in terms of the, the, you know, what is the profit margin, cut it from the top and, you know, like just do the, um, <laughs> the resource distribution. Um, yeah, I, that is something I want to learn more about and I will learn about during residency, the sort of like management after, uh, aspect of, of, um, of health systems. I think I would encourage you to do so. I think you'll find it fascinating, interesting, and very complex mm -hmm. uh, because fundamentally, I mean, this is my opinion, the, one of our primary problems is, is the way that we have the payment system set up, RVUs. right? Because hospitals and healthcare systems make their margin in general off of procedures and imaging and surgery. Mm -hmm. and, and so we are not investing in health. We're not, right. we, we, and it's not, healthcare systems per se, we as a country have not invested in the public health infrastructure uh, uh -huh. that would benefit all of us and help our communities be healthier. And then along comes a horrible virus and we have a pandemic and we realize that we are not isolated, you know, we are all connected right, and that exactly. we can't separate ourselves and so I'm, I'm hopeful that one of the good things that comes out of this horrible pandemic is a heightened awareness and appreciation that health disparities matters to everyone. Mm -hmm. right? It should be all of our concern <clears throat> collectively. I think generally there is some degree of awareness that, um, that, it, that they concern everyone, but as a reticence to... Um, to there's a reticence when it comes to cost sharing of addressing the disparities, right? And that's why um, features like segregation like are like forever living, right? Like the, 
the like part of the uh, the benefits of segregation is you don't get to be around black people, right? Like, and so uh, I'll use a good example in the Flexner report, right, which was published in like 1910. Like Flexner, Abraham Flexner's comments about black medical schools and black physicians, like part of why, even though of course he recommended that most historically black medical uh, colleges be closed because of quote unquote quality, he said, well, you know, keep Howard and Meharry um, and uh, uh, yeah, keep Howard and Meharry because we need at least a few quote-unquote Negro doctors to take care of the Negro populace um, so that they can contain um, tuberculosis in their communities, right? And so there was always an awareness even amongst the most racist of physicians back in the 1910, right, that we do live interconnected lives. And so uh, and, 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 and so to, to Abraham Flexner, the purpose of like racial concordance and patient care was more about containing like TB and syphilis and whatnot in the black community so that it wouldn't seep um, into, uh, you know, into the existence of white people. And along with that lives on segregation, right? So like, um, yes, it, yes, uh, like COVID is an infectious disease that like, you know, like it doesn't respect walls or whatever, but also at the same time, like people, um, uh, there are all kinds of mechanisms that are created and reproduced to maintain some degrees of segregation, right? Like people, uh, both in terms of like, um, like la the labor market, right? Like people are able to just like stay at home and have food delivered at their door and they never see the person who even delivers the food. Um, and like, you know, order food to be delivered from whatever neighborhood, but they remain in their nice segregated, um, like Bethesda yeah. neighborhood or whatever, right? So there are all kinds of systems in place for people to be able to resist the um, uh, the need for all of us to contribute to health disparities. Let's turn to one more topic that I really want to cover. And mm -hmm. that is about unconscious bias in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And I, I personally see this as a big topic. Doctors and nurses in our system will automatically form impressions of patients that may not be true. You know, we all make assumptions. For example, mm -hmm. an overweight person would be lazy. That's an assumption we make when we don't actually know that. That person might be right. working two jobs to support their family and they don't have time for exercise. Right. So I'd like you uh, to share with our listeners your thoughts about unconscious bias from your perspective as a medical student and how how um, impactful you think this is or isn't and uh -huh. what you think we need to do to to educate our healthcare providers yeah um, you're right I mean you know the evidence is there it, it is incredibly impactful right I see it all the time uh, and sometimes it's not even unconscious, sometimes it is conscious uh, and like, in fact, comes with mockery. Uh, but I, yes, I do think as a med student, I've seen it like, you know, uh, attending doubts whether a patient's really in pain or a resident doubts whether a patient's really in pain or the nurse does. Or, and there's this sort of like interesting team dynamic that takes place where sometimes there's actually conflict and uh in favor of like I've caught near misses as a medical student uh right because like you know bias like shapes whether you're negligent towards a patient or not uh, and so I am glad that I mean that's one of the values of like diversifying the healthcare workforce right that you have people who are going to come 
from different um, uh, walks of life. And so like they may approach situations differently and, and like challenge your position versus when everyone is sort of like of the same background and you just kind of like all agree with each other and like, uh, and, and the patient is harmed from it. Um, and so, you know, I think education is good. It's good that people are aware, but there, there are pitfalls, right, to, uh, to simply just educating people. So there's actually good evidence that uh, when white people are made aware of, of their biases, if it doesn't come, like, it, there's an increased anxiety around interracial contact, right? Almost, it's almost like a feature of sort of white guilt, like, oh my God, I think, like, like, like a heightened... Oh, um, like fear of being racist, of, of, of being racist or being perceived as racist because one is not aware of said biases. So I think there's, you know, the the proliferation of implicit bias training, um, while 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 well intended, may have some unintended consequences that have yet to be measured. But we know from experimental psychology work and social psychologists, um, you know, uh, that it there are consequences to uh, raising awareness around implicit bias without, you know, any other sort of uh, like contextual education uh, around that uh, or support, right? Um, uh, every like so when we typically talk about stereotype threat, generally we think of it um, from the perspective of uh, of like an individual who might be minoritized. In a, uh, in a setting, so like myself as a black man, like, you know, being in the hospital, if someone says something racist to me, like that may, you know, sort of raise my anxieties around being the only black person in the space. And similarly, uh, you know, like I'm sure that there are some white people who are really anxious about being perceived as racist. And the unintended consequence of that is an avoidance of interacting with black people or avoiding to make eye contact like all those kinds of things, which ultimately actually shape the clinical encounter, right? We know physicians don't don't make as much eye contact with their black patients, and the reason behind is not well known, right? We, but we know it's a thing. They use fewer words, uh, less positive body language, and we, you know, the, the hypothesis is that it has to do with with unconscious bias. And it may also be that this weird, this like awareness of unconscious bias makes them tense right, in their fear of being perceived right. as racist. So um, it's both, right? I think it's good to be aware of the biases and, like, work hard at, um, at, at, at making sure we're addressing them, uh, but not actively sort of, like, arming people uh, with the tools to, to address them can then have kind of like a ricochet effect. And, you know, the best evidence that's out there in terms of addressing unconscious biases one is like perspective taking, right? So basically um, uh, imagining yourself in the person's shoes, like, you know, the shoes of this person across from you. Uh, and then uh, there's a theory around like just positive contact and it's good evidence uh, from this cohort of medical students that changes cohort, basically changes study cohort. Uh, they've shown, right, like that white med students who have had positive experiences with senior physicians of color um, they've seen changes in both explicit and implicit biases, uh, in like, you know, from like, uh, towards black patient as they've gone through medical school, um, the same medical students who are in a sort of like quote unquote positive 
racial environment, more diverse medical school um, have also seen improved, uh, you know, like sort of like a shift in their negative implicit and explicit attitudes towards um, towards black patients. And what, so then what does that mean? Uh, in, in the same study, by the way, they also showed that the training doesn't, didn't change. The training is not what, what you might attribute uh, these changes to. And so, I mean, the evidence basically that the best one can do is really, um, you know, diversify the healthcare workforce, make sure that, um, you know, junior trainees, uh, especially those who are used to being in the majority, learn that learn to work under my like under right like learn from like authorities or figures of authority who are not always the majority right like have a black attending um or you know what i mean but it's hard obviously because like black physicians are like three percent of academia right um so uh, what are other ways than like a white medical student might learn to sort of like take instructions from a person who is black and senior to them uh, make medical students like follow nurses more like you know like in the other spaces right. in medicine that are more diverse but where you as a medical student still have to like uh like take orders and um uh i mean but that in itself isn't that easy right because like also med students have this sort of like ethos or ego of like i'm going to be a doctor um and the superior you know the sort of like medical hegemony right like so i don't know whether that would even necessarily work when it comes to the interdisciplinary care but there there's good evidence that inter interdisciplinary uh training in medical school does make med students more sort of respectful of other specialties writ large so i think generally the solution is embracing as a health system explicitly embracing um like pro like justice um, values and like making clear via like, uh, you know, subtle signs, like, you know, the back of the computer, you see it in a hospital at a time, like at the VA, um, there's like, you know, like the rainbow sign that like shows up at the back in the backdrop of your computer. That just kind of random subtle reminders, but also solid efforts in, in improving the culture and making sure that people, you know, feel that they belong. And ultimately, right, the bang for everyone's buck, it's like diversifying the healthcare workforce, which, by the way, we cannot achieve unless we're also investing in anti-poverty policies, right? Because we can't expand the pipeline um, if poverty persists, Correct. right? So it's got to be like Correct. a multi-pronged approach. Excellent point. We cannot expand the pipeline for underrepresented individuals in healthcare if we can't support young people getting higher levels of education. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, there's no one to select to train. Yep, exactly. And, and, and diversity on the team, I think, is so critical. And I loved your point about the interdisciplinary teams because I personally believe that that is the direction that we need to move in terms of mm -hmm. how we're going to deliver higher quality and value-driven and very patient-centered care in the future. Mm -hmm. So Max, you have just been wonderful and I wanna thank you so much. Um, in closing, I wanna thank our listeners for listening uh, to this episode of the Health Disparities Podcast. And please take a moment to subscribe in iTunes or Spotify so that you don't have to miss a future episode. Again, I wanna thank, thank Max for joining us today on our podcast. Thank you so much. It was nice to be here with you today.
You've been a wonderful and engaging guest. And on behalf of the entire Movement is Life family, we thank you for your incredible efforts to promote health equity and inspiring others to join in achieving this mission. So dear listeners, until next time, goodbye and have a great and healthy day. Thank you. Thank you.